Welcome to the Bank of Me podcast channel, looking at how individual and team performance build strong cultures. Hosted by James Farrow and Chris Preston. You are listening to a deep dive episode. I'm here today with Pam August, who is Director of Culture Activation at WestJet. And we've been doing some events with Pam in the UK this week around the book launch. And uh, without wanting to sound too sycophantic, Pam has gone down an absolute storm. Uh, The story of how the airline went from a couple of planes and a small group of people to what it is now, an international airline, is truly inspirational. And WestJet is one of the few organisations that we've come across where their stated aim and their view on their culture is borne out by everything they do. I'd like to ask Pam to chat through some of the stories around what makes them who they are. And perhaps Pam, hello. Hello. (laughs) Good to you to join us. Perhaps you could start off by just chatting through a, a potted history of WestJet. Yeah, I think, thank, first of all, Chris, I'm really, really happy to be here in this conversation with you around this amazing and important topic of culture. And I think the, the first thing that, that I'd like to say about culture is that sometimes we think of culture as a thing that is separate from everything. But culture isn't a thing. It's the way we do everything. And so at WestJet, we are very much, and we have been from the beginning, an organization that takes this work of culture very seriously. Although we do have a saying in our organization, we take our job seriously, but not ourselves. So we're a very lighthearted organization. But we're a lighthearted organization that works in a very, very tough competitive business of airline commercial aviation, where the failure rate of, of new startup airlines is up, upwards of 97%. And so from the very beginning, we set out to be different, and we set out to be different in two ways. One was to have a low-cost model so that we could provide affordable fares for Canadians to get more Canadians, give them more opportunity to fly. And then second of all is create an experience, uh, a human experience, that uh, comes from care and warmth that changes people's uh, perspective and their their view on what air travel is. For many people, it's a necessary evil to get to their family, their work, their vacation, their event or their function. And what we've worked to do from the beginning at WestJet is is really create something that feels different um, through a culture of caring and ownership. Thus, the acronym that we've used in our organization from the beginning, which is CARE, create a remarkable experience. And a remarkable experience is simply one that someone wants to tell someone else. Just to put in perspective, can you share the numbers of growth in the last 22 years? Yeah, so when we started on February 29th, uh, 1996, we are a leap year baby. And some would say it was because our founders were too cheap to have a birthday party every year. They only wanted to do it every four years. Um, from the very beginning, we had uh, 225 WestJetters. We had three planes, and we flew to five cities. We were modeled initially after Southwest Airlines, a very successful, uh, both from a business and a cultural perspective, organization. And over time, because of the geography and relatively sparse population of, of Canada, we have had to adapt our model and move away from a single fleet type point-to-point and become more of a full-value carrier. 
that offers different products for different guests, that has different fleet types for different geographies. Um, and now we are taking that model uh, even further with our 787 Dreamliners and going to the global market and, and going for really that premium guest, someone who travels those long distances, someone who travels for business and wants the amenities um, that come with that kind of travel. And there, there, there's three numbers that you've shared with me, um, and I'm not going to do them because I'll probably get them wrong. So, But they were, first of all, the, the, the number that dispels the myth that airlines make a lot of money. Uh, that's, oh, that was quite yeah. a shocking number. So there was that one. Um, the second one was your profit st stats over the last few years. Oh, yes. And the third one, I'll come back to more. Yeah, so I think, and just on the, on the note of numbers, we started with 225 employees. We now have 13,000. And that doesn't include our contracted partners that operate all over the world, including here in Gatwick, London. Um, we had one fleet type. We now have four. We had one product offering, and we now will have lie flat seats, lie flat seats in our business class cabins on our 787s. And so the airline industry margins are very, very small. I mean, we're talking we're talking in the the range of ten to twelve percent of margin, and you know there there's a bit of a joke I had with a hockey dad. I my, being Canadian, my children, my boys have grown up uh, in hockey rinks, and we've grown up watching them. And one of the dads was selling almonds for a, a charitable fundraiser, and I didn't have the three dollars to give him. And he made a comment that we had gouged him on his flight going to Phoenix for his winter vacation. And so I shared with him the information that, you know, on average at that time, we flew um, the average guest 980 miles. And for that distance, we made a profit of about $13. So in the end, he decided to buy the almonds, which was a good choice. <laughs> I, I, I have you described as well that the airline industry is a very capital-heavy industry. I mean, planes are not cheap, are they? Oh, they're billions. Wow. They're billions of dollars. Um, and these planes are purchased, truthfully, before we have the people that are buying the tickets to fly in them. Now... They're scary numbers, and it's put me off starting an airline. But then there's one last number, which is the percentage of failures in the airline industry. Yeah, the, 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 the stats, I mean, the stats can vary over years, but we actually have at WestJet on the wall the airline graveyard. Um, and that reminds us of all the airlines that have started in North America and failed, and the number is, is over 95%. But not you guys. So mm -hmm. you're using a word which we don't hear normally in the airline industry and its guests. Tell me more about that because I think that comes from the very early days, doesn't it? It does, it does. And, and early, early, early days, uh, Don Bell, one of our founders, um, a pilot, uh, an entrepreneur and, and an amazing cultural force within WestJet, um, brought it into WestJet the notion of calling the people that fly with us guests. And at that time, even f people that worked for WestJet, a number of them told him he was crazy. And, and said things like, you know, Don Bell, we're not a hotel. We are an airline. We fly passengers or in aviation, commercial aviation, it's packs for short. Um, they said, you know, who do you think you are? We're not, we're not a hotel. We are a transportation vehicle. And, and Don challenged that perspective and said, you know, said, think about it. And, and there's a phrase that I've, I've co-opted from someone, which is words create worlds. And so the language that we use uh, creates the meaning and experience that we have and that we share with others. And so just for a moment, think about the difference between transporting a passenger on a plane compared to welcoming a guest on board. It's a very uh, different perspective. It's a very different emotion, and it results in a very different experience.
and I've experienced it firsthand. And so first of all, I can confirm the word guest is used. Uh, we were greeted as guests. Uh, and secondly as well, WestJet offers and gives an amazing experience. As an economy flying passenger, my flight on WestJet was second to none. How? Because so many organisations, and we, we've heard this a lot, uh, they create values, they create a purpose, they create a mission, and then they stick it on walls, they hand it out on cards, and they expect people to change. And it, of course it doesn't happen. But in WestJet, your beliefs are lived daily. Mm-hmm. What What's happening that's making this a reality? Well, I think it's it's been an interesting... I mean, we are studied as a case study in, in many universities and schools in, in Canada um, and probably in other places in the world now as well. And I think it's a really interesting study in, in this world of, of marketing as an example because we have literally a living brand. And so if you think of the word brand or if I think of the word brand... I I see steam irons and heat and I see cattle and I see something that is put onto something. Whereas what happened with WestJet was because of the beliefs of our founders, because of that really core group of WestJetters that came together at the very beginning, who they were, the brand emerged from that. And and we actually have language in WestJet where we talk about our our corporate colors, our, our navy and teal, and we talk about WestJetters who bleed teal. And so in our, in our organization, the word culture and brand sometimes almost get mixed up because who we are is the same as the promise that we make to the world. And, and so it's become something, I think it's always been something that's authentic. And because it's authentic, it's very resonant with people, which is the reason why our Christmas miracle, this is my theory, that our Christmas miracle video um, from five years ago went viral and has now been watched by over 50-some million people is because even though we don't give out TVs to people who fly on our planes, and if you haven't seen the video, just Google WestJet Christmas miracle video, there was something about the spirit of that video that felt real. And I think in a world where realness is becoming much, much less of the norm, that is something that is very, very appealing um, and, and meets a deep need that a lot of us have. This is one thing that we talk about a lot, this idea that what you say you are isn't necessarily who you are. And so many organizations fall foul of that. that mm-hmm. We see marketing, we see glitz, we see big um, statements about the service that they provide and it just doesn't live out and it's counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Again, you're using a word that's interesting here, which is WestJetters. Do you want to just explain... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so the, the the element of social identity in our organization is a huge factor. And and so if you think about the words compliance and commitment, compliance is because we have to and commitment is because we want to. Compliance comes from the head, commitment comes from the heart. And and so we actually as WestJetters, like I ju- I just I, I have a hard time even distinguishing that as a, as a vehicle of language because it's just so much of the way we talk. But you don't get a job at WestJet you become a WestJetter. And so that emotional connection, that social identity is is one of our big cultural strengths. It's also at times a cultural challenge because everything is so emotional and, and feels highly personal that at times those emotions might not be the emotions that we want to have. The thing for your company as it grows is this idea about increasing complexity. Mm. And what I hear when we talk to you is that in in the earlier days when you were a point-to-point airline it was simpler 
and there was more leeway and autonomy to do the right thing. But now where you're hinging on a lot of things together in terms of connecting flights, in terms of more complexity, that's not as easy, is it? And that's a growing pain for you, I guess. Yeah, not not at all. And in fact, I mean, truthfully, when we came into the aviation space in 1996, we were dealing with a very fractured industry, a competitor who was not strong, who was in their own state of disarray. And so it was actually easy to be great. Um, what's happened, though, is we have raised the bar in, in experience. We've raised the bar in terms, raised the bar by lowering fares in terms of expectation around what a fare will cost. And so now we are being held to that standard that we've created. So when we fall short of it, and it does happen, um, we are human and we make mistakes, people will say, well, that doesn't feel like WestJet which is an interesting interesting and great problem to have. So the thing about that is that we've had to evolve from a point-to-point carrier, low-cost carrier, with one configuration, one fleet type, to a more uh, traditional legacy-type hub-and-spoke model, just in, in, in order to continue our growth. And so that brings a couple of things. One is it makes things much more complicated. And the second thing is, because humans are involved, it's much more complex. And so the way that, you know, I've I've learned through studies that I've been involved in recently in my master's program is that things that are complicated are very difficult to figure out and you need to be an expert. But once you have that expertise, there's very strong cause and effect. So things are very predictable, like flying an airplane. Things that are complex, though, are largely unpredictable, somewhat chaotic and emergent. So anything that has to do anything with humans and, and human interaction. And so there's not the same easy cause and effect. We often use the language in, in HR and people leadership of best practice. The challenge is best practice doesn't necessarily work in a complex environment because what might be best practice for one organization in their particular culture won't work in ours. And so as we have become more complicated and more complex, it's really not as simple as saying, you know what, we will do this and this will happen. So the, the job of, of, of leaders and the job, truthfully, of leaders that are, are leading culture, which is about beliefs and assumptions and values and behavior and, and human beings, is, is that what we need to do is we need to test things and probe things and do things in the system. And then the job of the leader is to really watch, listen, learn, and respond which is not as easy in the hectic world that we're in, in do these three things, check the box, and hey, we've got an app for that. It just doesn't work that way. And so the more this this cycle that we're in of increasing complication and complexity continues, the less likely we're truthfully able to predict with certainty what's going to work and what's not going to work. Absolutely. And, And the thing that always makes me smile is when you see someone boil down human behavior and and social interactions into an equation yeah because i look at it and i think every time the result would be different and yet it seems that very reductionist leadership is about saying well do this and this will happen and it doesn't and i guess that's one thing that you guys are learning as you add more complexity Mm -hmm. but you also talk about kind of this the sense of ownership from the west jetters to use the, the correct term and how that is both an incredible, powerful thing for you guys, but also something that sometimes is a challenge in terms of when when change happens and people 
have to be brought in and, and that kind of contract around how you behave mm-hmm. being more tricky to negotiate. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think the the thing about that is we do have a culture of ownership and we have a culture, uh, particularly compared to other organizations, where people feel that they are empowered to do what they think is the right thing to do for the guest um, and, and for our organization in that moment. The challenge with that is is individual actions that might be right in one moment may lead to an inconsistent experience for that same guest because their interactions span our whole network, geographies and different and different um, West Jetters. And so in in the need, because we you know we transport millions of guests every year, that that struggle or challenge or tension or polarity between individualized empowerment, and creating a con- consistent, reliable experience that our guests can count on is, is a tension that, that we struggle with at times. It sounds similar to the, the, the Spotify model, which is uh, high alignment and high autonomy. Mm. That if you know where the company's going, you can navigate it in the way you see fit that makes sense. But I guess where you've got more parts that hinge on each other that becomes less less likely. And it sounds like there's a shift going on with, with WestJet and that attitude. Mm-hmm. And is it an easy shift, or are you seeing people saying, we want the old WestJet? Um, it's it's all of the above, truthfully. <laughs> it's it's all of the above. And, and you know, you can talk to a, a group of WestJetters that work in the same role, that work in the same team, and, and much like, you know, we're sitting in a movie theater, an empty movie theater right now, people come to a, the same film and have a completely different experience of it. So what's the difference is their lens, their perspective their filters, all of those things that happen. So we have all of that, all of that going on right now. And I would say um, we've recently had um, a change in our senior leadership. Our new chief executive, uh, Ed Sims, comes from New Zealand, where he was a senior leader in Air New Zealand and then led the Air Traffic Control Division, Airways New Zealand, for a number of years before he came to us. And his mantra that he repeats over and over and over again is structure, process, and discipline. Because structure, process, and discipline allows us to build consistency. It allows us to remove waste from our system. And it actually allows us to free up energy to put into the things that matter rather than wasting energy and wasting resource and wasting time on doing what should be routine things. Yeah. Different every time we do it. Now, one of the things that we talk about are in the workforce, two groups of people. One being the savers, who are people who come in and do an okay job, and it's a transactional process. And then we have the group we call investors, people who are going to put in far more in terms of emotion, Mm -hmm. in terms of discretionary effort. And the reason we use the word investor is because investor is about owning something. And we use it as a metaphor, but it's very literal in WestJet sense because you've got a big group of owners working for you, haven't you? We do. We have uh, 79% of uh, WestJetters own shares in the company. And we're actually the largest single shareholder group, and we're a publicly traded company. And so what's what's interesting is, I think, at, at WestJet, where that shows up is the difference between being an owner and a shareholder. So we are both owner-shareholders. And so when you have ownership of something, you you take better care of it. It's kind of like a rental vehicle. If you're just renting a car, well, who really cares if I spill that milkshake or get sand in it from the beach or whatever? But if it's my own vehicle, I take much better care of it. 
And so, you know, when, when things, when we are working the way that we need to as a culture, we have much more of an ownership mentality. Sometimes, though, what creeps in, though, with some and at different times for different reasons is more of a shareholder mentality, which is what are the dividends that you're going to give me? Ownership says, what can I do to contribute? Shareholders say, what return are you going to give to me? And so it's a subtle but very distinct yeah. difference. I, it, it, I was chat with one of the podcasts that we've done recently is with a company creating a shareholding app for pe more people to become shareholders. Mm -hmm. But one of the things they're seeing is people want far more involvement with the company they're buying into. It, right. It's not a transaction. It needs to be a relationship. But And one of the things just kind of to, to share the scope of this that – when we visited you in your Canadian offices, in your main reception area, there's a check, a large check. Mm. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it was something like $10 million. Mm. And <laughs> there's, there's telephone numbers. Um, but that's, that is the money, is it in the last quarter or the last it year? It would have been over two quarters. Okay. And I, I'm going to get the number wrong. Over our history, we have shared back with... WestJetters, hundreds of millions of dollars of profit share. So we share profits twice a year. And we have been profitable all, so we 22 years times four quarters. We have been profitable every quarter with the exception of three. Two of those quarters came 14 years ago, and one of those quarters was just the last quarter. Um, and so we have a very long track record of, of financial success. Part of the challenge that comes with that is the belief that we will always be successful. And for 89% of our employee population, until this last quarter, they had only experienced profitable quarters. Um, and so this last quarter has, has been a really, I, I, I would say, um, an important wake-up call for a lot of us that, it were, again, we're in a tough industry going up against much better competition than we ever have had and much more competition coming from different places. And, you know, in the early days, we were the underdog that, you know, we, I think I can, I think I can. Now we need to move into being the challenger and, and really believing that we can and with that belief taking the actions to ensure that we do. And I guess as well, it's that adage that if you want to win the race, you have to burn more fuel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't coast. But this, now this is an interesting question. I've worked with companies before where they've given shares to people and they're incredibly important to them in terms of ownership. And they proudly tell their friends and family they own the company. But they have no idea what they're worth. What, what, do you think people in WestJet actively know the cent value? Or do you think it's more of an, eth an idea? I think, I think it's a both and. I think there are some definitely that do. Um, I think, though, one of the big opportunities that we have moving forward is building greater business acumen with our WestJetters. When you have uh, an owner mindset, which we talk about, we talk about this notion of act like an owner, use your owner's mindset, you're bringing your head. And, and what comes with that as a prerequisite is actually understanding the mechanics of our business and the fundamental financial operating principles of it. And, and then there is the piece around um, ownership from a, a commitment place, which gets more into the heart, which then ties into our second value, which is around caring from the heart which is not just about feeling good and connection and all of that. It's actually 
all about some of the more challenging aspects of caring, which is sometimes doing tough things. And so our, our value, the second line of our value, care from the heart, says I do the right thing and I do things right because I care. I don't do the easy thing, the popular thing, or the fun thing. I do the right thing. And I think now more than ever, we are going to see the reality of that experience being lived. Just one last thing, because you talk about this, this sense of ownership and caring and the, the, the great metaphor around the hire car. Tell me about flying on a WestJet aeroplane if you're a WestJetter. Yeah, so if, if, if any of you have ever flown on WestJet or if you will fly on WestJet, you will see random people in civilian clothing cleaning our plane. Please do not think that you as our guest need to clean the plane. We don't ask our guests to clean our planes. What we do, though, is we have a cultural expectation that WestJetters, when they are flying for business or when they are flying for pleasure, they do something that's called grooming. And so grooming is something that happens when we turn an aircraft, meaning it lands, then 45 minutes or an hour later, it takes off again. And it is an expectation that we will all help to groom the plane by picking up trash, folding seatbelts, swiping or wiping off crumbs, and um, sometimes even getting out the small hand vacuum in case there's been um, crackers. That happens a lot on flights to Disneyland where there's a lot of vacuuming, <laughs> vacuuming that is required. And this is something that our cabin crew do. It's something that our pilots do. It's something that all WestJetters do when they fly. Our executives actually take it even a step further. Our executives and our vice presidents, when they are flying for business or for pleasure, it is an expectation if the crew is wanting to receive the help that they actually do service and pick up garbage during the flight. So you will see our executives not only not sitting in business class or premium economy or any of that, they are actually working during the flight helping our crew. And I guess to close that circle, technically and literally, it's their plane. It is. If you're a shareholder, then you could probably sit down and work out which bolt or which part of the plane actually is yours. I think that's a lovely idea. Yeah, we just we just did a thing called an owner's mindset um, hack, hackathon, kind of based on some of the hackathons that the IT industry does. And we had a weigh-in of our airplanes, and we took everything off the plane in our hangar that we could and have it still be safe and, and still comfortable for our guests, and we weighed it. And then what we did is we had cross-functional teams of WestJetters. They were given a problem to solve, which was about taking weight off the plane because our, our single most expensive line item is fuel. And in times where the price of oil is going up and we buy jet fuel in U.S. dollars and the uh, foreign exchange rate is not in our favor right now, um, every, every penny counts, quite literally. And, and so we had these WestJetters come together and work in cross-functional teams to tell us what can we do to take weight off the aircraft that will not diminish safety and will not diminish the guest experience. And they came up with ideas that save us literally millions of dollars. I, I know there's one industry story, and this could be made up, but one, when our line ditched its in-flight magazine, mm -hmm. and just by doing that, the amount of money they saved in fuel reduction and I guess you don't really think about how close those tolerances are. Oh, yeah. It, it is right now. Uh, we estimated um, or modeled, I wouldn't even say estimated, we modeled a can of Coca-Cola. So if a can of Coca-Cola flies around our network for one day not consumed, it is the equivalent of an Olympic-sized swimming pool worth of, worth of fuel that gets burned as a result. Oh, my word. <laughs> that's an expensive can of Coke. It's a very expensive can of Coke. I think that's a great place to end. Pam, so much for your time. It's lovely to chat to you. Hope to talk to you again soon. Likewise. Thank, Thank you, Chris. You. Thank you for listening. 
Continue the journey at www.thecultureBuilders.com. <laughs>